0: Darkness has never intimidated God. Darkness doesn't threaten God. There's never a day or a moment when darkness presses in on the heart of God and God doesn't know how to respond or it feels to God as if it is too much for Him. John 1, 5 is a verse we recite with our family, our kids, almost every day. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Amen? Amen. As my mom would say, truth, church, truth. She has a better response from that than I do. (laughs) Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in prison in Germany in November of 1943. He was a devout Jesus follower. He's written a lot on the Sermon on the Mount, spiritual disciplines. He came to the United States to get his PhD, went back to Germany in the time of Hitler's regime, and there he tried to lead people deeper into the heart of God. He found himself in prison. And it was in prison that he wrote some of the best stuff he's, he's written. And he had this one statement where he reflected on Advent, the tension between light and darkness. And he said this, A prison cell like this is a good analogy for Advent. That one waits, hopes, does this or that. Ultimately, neg- negligible things. And then he says this, The door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you felt like you were in bondage or in an addiction or taken over by an emotion and you couldn't find your way out? It's like you couldn't find the key to get yourself out. And then you came to the realization that you can't get yourself out. Only Jesus can. And Jesus holds the universal key that can unlock any form of bondage that we struggle with in our lives. And he came to this earth to unlock it. So as we celebrate the coming of Jesus around this time of year, Jesus didn't come just for entertainment. Jesus didn't come to put on a show. He's not Jesus the entertainer. He didn't just come, to, he didn't just come to, to, to reveal to us or to show you what God is like. He did so much more than that. Jesus came with a gift. He came with gifts. And with the gift Jesus came to bring was liberation and deliverance and freedom, not just from political forces, but from the powers of sin. I've shared with you, and I'm going to preach next Sunday night at our community Christmas service, the first mention of sin in the New Testament is not about what sin does to human beings, it's what Jesus came to do to sin. That in Matthew 121, it says, you were to give him the name Jesus because he will rescue, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus arrived to bring something, but what we know throughout all of Scripture is deliverance is almost always met with resistance. Deliverance and freedom is met with resistance. Deliverance disrupts the status quo, it threatens the powerful. So, what I want to do a couple of times this month is to help show how Exodus 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2 have some similarities. They're the two greatest stories of deliverance in the entire Bible. That the book of Exodus is God delivering his people from hundreds of years of slavery. And it's, a, it's the story that so many Jewish festivals center around. And then the ultimate Exodus is how Jesus came to deliver us from sin and to usher us into new life. The two greatest stories of God's deliverance came in times of some of the superpower, superpowers powers of the world. In Exodus you had Pharaoh in Egypt. In the New Testament you have the, the emperors in Rome... And if you're the angels in heaven, you may be thinking, God, how about we wait for a time when it will be much easier to send something into the world to usher in your deliverance? Because under the powers of Egypt and the powers of Rome, this wasn't going to be the easiest thing. But here's something God does. When it comes to deliverance, He confronts the powers. And God often uses insignificant people to usher in His deliverance. We may call them extras, or minors, or supporting cast. If you were to watch a movie or a show with no extras, I think you would notice. Uh, Though, when you're watching a movie or a show, you probably don't pay much attention to extras unless you are one, right? Elizabeth Patterson. (laughs) Made it into a Hallmark movie. You did it for the money, right? (laughs) But usually you don't notice them. But if they weren't there, if there was a movie and someone is had they have a scene in Times Square and there are no extras, you would know something. You would notice. If you removed every extra and every small supporting role from the Bible, we would miss out on a lot. Mother Teresa says, Not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. And this works in every facet of life. It works in marriage. I am not the best husband. There are some things I need to do a lot better. But I've noticed in my wife's life that some of the things that mean the most to her is not when I buy her expensive jewelry or send her on shopping sprees. It's some of the small things I try to do with great love. I love buying Casey flowers for no occasion, but just to let her know I love her. But you know what's funny is whenever I do this, the response from people wherever I'm buying the flowers Because when I buy buy flowers for my wife, this has happened multiple times. Happened a couple of weeks ago. I go to purchase them, and the person behind the counter, do you know the first question they ask me? This has happened multiple times. Are you in trouble? (laughs) I'm like, no, I'm not in trouble. Question two, is it your anniversary? No. Is it your birthday? No. And then they come back to, are you in trouble? (laughs) Like, like something's got to be there. Like, the fact that you would just buy flowers for some random occasion just doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Small things with great love. Significant figures in the book of Exodus and in Jesus' birth took major risks out of a fear of God, out of a deep curiosity, and out of deep conviction. And I want to take you to to, to one of these stories this morning. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. And then at the end, I want to bring us back to Matthew chapter 2. As you're flipping your Bibles to Exodus 1, thank you for loving my parents so well last week. Did you enjoy having my family here last week? Uh, Yeah, it's all right. You can clap for them. I love, I love my parents. My mom's radiation went great this week. My mom is cancer-free. We celebrate that. My, yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, I loved having my mom and my wife on the stage. Some of you were giving me like up-to-date text messages from where I was in Texas. And this whole thing my dad did about tucking in the shirt and, the, you know, the, the difference between him and me is that he tucks in a shirt. Uh, my dad's never going to preach here again, All right. <laughs> And as I listened to that podcast, I heard the church laugh in that moment, and I'm convinced you were laughing at him, not with him, okay? And some of the amens, I'm just going to let some of those slide. I called my dad. I was like, Dad, how are you going to make a joke about tucking in shirts? I was like, Dad, you still tuck in your t-shirts to sweatpants and athletic shorts, all right? (laughs) And if you're sitting there right now thinking, what's wrong with tucking in a t-shirt to sweatpants and athletic shorts? I'm going to let some of you fill in how that joke should just go, all right? Exodus 1, beginning in verse 15. Hear the word of God. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiphrah and Pua, when you were helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They give birth before the midwives. It's like one contraction and boom, the baby's there. We can't explain it. Uh, And somehow Pharaoh bought it, kind of. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Why would you become a midwife? Now, some of you here may be midwives, but back then, like, why would you become a midwife? I could never be a midwife. If you see movies and shows, babies are born into the world, and it's like when they are born, they're wrapped in a blanket, and they look like they have been perfectly bathed and combed. Right? I've had two boys, and my boys did not come into the world looking like that. (laughs) I couldn't do it. There are some things you would want me to be to, to you would give me responsibility over. That would not be one of them. If you were a midwife, then you're probably either doing it out of calling, maybe it's an occupation. But they're there to help usher babies into the world. And here's what's so striking about this story. Pharaoh feels threatened because the people of God for hundreds of years, they have grown and they continue to grow and they're multiplying and they can't keep them from growing. And Pharaoh feels this threat that oppression isn't working. People are only growing so the suppressing slaves wasn't working. So he decided to do something else. And if you know anything about history, Pharaoh is not the only one who has done this. If you know anything about history, when there are powerful people who have zero moral compass, there is no bar that can get low enough to how low they can stoop to hold their power. Am I right? We've seen this throughout the history of the world. In our lifetimes, we've seen this, that powerful people, when they feel threatened, some of them who have no moral compass, there's no bar low enough that they won't stoop to to make sure they are holding their power. So Pharaoh calls in the midwives. According to the story, Pharaoh doesn't send an assistant to go talk to the midwives. Pharaoh calls the midwives, insignificant people, women who were powerless, to come into his presence for him to give them the direct message. And the direct message was, when the babies of the Israelites are born, if they're boys, you are supposed to kill them. If they're girls, you let them live but I love this little phrase you have in your Bible. But the midwives feared God. They feared God. Now, what the midwives struggle with is what we still struggle with today, that there is this struggle between life and blessing and between death and curse. And that the enemy and Satan and all of his angels and all of his friends, they, they desire to cut off life. They desire to cut off life from the beginning if they can't get it from the beginning. They desire to cut off life in its youth if they can't get it in its youth and in adulthood. And I'm not just talking about death. That the enemy is on the brow with all of his angels and servants to try to cut off life, to be an obstacle to life, to keep people from coming to life, to embracing the adventurous life. But God is on the side of life. God is for life. In the Hebrew, it's Elohim, creator God, that God had created in the beginning and he's still creating now. God is still on the side of life. Maybe we could call it pro-life, but we need to broaden how we think about pro-life. Because God's not just for getting babies into the world. He's for caring for them once they're in the world. And he's against any obstacle or any group of people who sets itself up in the way of anything coming to life, whether it's the unborn or the born. That God is for life, nurturing life. These these Hebrew wives, they fear God. They fear God. This isn't being afraid of God. This isn't a, like there are times in the Bible where people are afraid of God, but when you read about being fearful of God or people fearing God, it's not that they're afraid of God so they're going to hide in a closet or afraid of God so they're not going to come out into the light or move outside. It's this fear of God that does three things. I want you to write these down. It's an acknowledgement of God's existence. It's an acknowledgement of God. To fear God was an awareness of God's activity. And to fear God was aligning one's heart with God's desires. It's an acknowledgement of God. It's an awareness of God's activity. It's an alignment with God's desires. Now, I want you to look at these on the screen because this is possible. It is possible for you to have an acknowledgement of God's existence yet not to have a desire to align one's heart with God's desires. It's possible, I think, to, want to align some of your life with God's desires and to be a good person, yet not to live with an awareness of what is God doing around me and how is God inviting me to join in it. To fear God for the midwives and for us is an acknowledgement of God's existence. It's an awareness of God's activity around us. It's an alignment with who God's, what His desires are, what God wants of me. And we need all of these things. Their fear of God wasn't being afraid of Him in a way that made them passive. It made them want to act in the world. And these midwives let the boys live and they lied about it. Some call this civil disobedience. Some have called this an ethic of defenseless resistance. That I think we all know that the Bible talks about obeying the laws of the land, but we also know that there is such thing as unjust laws that throughout the Bible there were laws in the land and there were times where people broke the laws. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Paul sometimes broke the laws for the gospel of Jesus. We sometimes break laws around the world. There are laws in the land, yet many of us have supported organizations that get Bibles in the countries where the Bibles are supposed to be outlawed. In the days of the Civil Rights Movement, there was civil disobedience because all the laws weren't good for all people. So Shipper and Puah receive a direct message from Pharaoh on what to do, and they don't do it. They have a fear of God, an acknowledgement of God's existence, an awareness of what God is doing, and they want their hearts to be aligned with God's heart. Here's the, the kind of the funny thing about Shipper and Pua. Some of you know this story. And there are times when you have looked at this story to try to justify when are the times in your lives when it's okay to lie or not. Can I just throw out a couple of examples? And I bet you could think of some too. For any parent, there comes a time in your child's life when they turn, let's just say 12, 13, or 14, and they may ask, Mom or Dad, did you ever drink in high school? Did you ever go to a party without your parents knowing you were going to the party? Did you ever skip school? Should I keep going? Right? And you've got to think, do I answer my child? Or do I take the route of Shipper and Pua and maybe lie and hope God doesn't get too upset? And there are times in life where we're confronted with, okay, do I tell the truth or do I lie? And is my reputation on the line? But here's the thing about Shipper and Pua. If you pay careful attention to this story, Shipper and Pua are not concerned about their own reputations. They are concerned about the reputation of God. Chipper and Pua are not acting to defend themselves. They are risking their lives to protect life. They risk their lives to save lives, even though months from when they did this, some of the same boys they helped bring into the world would be murdered by others. Shipper and Pua wanted to be on the side of life, not another obstacle to it, and it should be a reality to confront you and me every single day. Do we want to be on the side of life and helping to usher in life, or are there times where we're an obstacle to how God is bringing life into other people? And where those cases exist, how can I confront them, repent of them, so I can be a conduit of God's life coming into the world? Is this making any sense to anybody? The Bible says God tended to them. It says God blessed them. He gave them families. He awarded them. He blessed them. But though the midwives acted in the way they did, it didn't keep Pharaoh from going back to the drawing board. And we've seen this enough in history. That there are leaders, when they feel threatened, they will try to strike fear in people. And if they strike fear and people give in to the fear, they can manipulate them to get them to bend to their will. Because what leaders have to do when they're not getting their way or they want people to bend to a will, even if it seems so low, is strike fear, get people to bite into the fear, and then paint a picture of worst-case scenario, and you can get people to bend to your will, even if they're good people. This happened in Nazi Germany, it happened in Rwanda, it happened in Egypt, it has happened in the United States. Like how could Pharaoh talk people into taking baby boys and tossing them into the Nile unless he was able to paint a picture of, guys, if we don't do something, all of our lives are in jeopardy. And people did it. But this story that we read in Exodus 1, it lives on because the midwives aren't just known as the midwives. They're known as Shiphrah and Pua. They have names. And we don't know what Pharaoh's name is. He's just Pharaoh. The Bible doesn't tell us who this Pharaoh was, but we know that there were two women, insignificant figures, powerless, who were given names because with God, people who align their hearts with God are never powerless. They're full of power. When you align your desires with God's desires, you're never powerless. One person says this, and the refusal of women to cooperate with oppression, the liberation of Israel from Egyptian bondage had its beginnings. Now I want you to fast forward just for a moment to Matthew chapter 2, because there are more insignificant figures that we know very little about who play a kind of a big role in the birth of Jesus. Now in Matthew's gospel, Matthew doesn't talk about shepherds. Only Luke talks about the shepherds being there, Jesus' birth. Matthew talks about magi. And there's a lot of confusion of who the Magi were. Are they wise men? Who are they? The Magi most likely were from the Persian priestly class. They're Gentiles. They're coming from far away. They didn't have a high reputation in many Jewish communities. Yet these Magi receive a star in the sky that they follow. Many of them gave into forms of astrology. They follow a star. But who tells the Magi how to go find Jesus? And the answer isn't the star, the Magi come into Jerusalem, and they ask in Jerusalem, where is the king of the Jews supposed to be born? They didn't know the Bible. And it's Herod who calls together the Bible teachers and the scholars and brings them in, and it's Herod who is informed by those who know the Bible that, hey, the is easy. The, the king is born in Bethlehem. And look in the Bible. It's Herod who tells them, then he sent them to Bethlehem, and he sent them with an agenda. If you find the king. I need you to report this to me. And they go and they find the king. They find Jesus. And the first worship service in the gospels breaks out. And they worship Jesus. And then what you have in Matthew 2 verse 12 is that they received in a dream that they need to go a different route home. They didn't go back to Herod. Civil disobedience. An ethic of defenseless resistance. Because throughout the Bible and in our lives, deliverance and freedom is met with rejection. And in Exodus, when deliverance and freedom was met with rejection, you had Shipper and Pua who continued to press forward into the life of God. In the times of Jesus... When deliverance and freedom was met with rejection, you had the Magi and you had shepherds and you had many others who continued to press forward in the life of God. In the early church, when deliverance and freedom was met with rejection, you had these people who were filled with the Spirit of God who continued to press forward into the life of God. And today, when we are met with rejection and deliverance and freedom is met with rejection, church, our response cannot be to become passive or to sit back or to become complacent or to whine about how bad the world is. Not if we've been filled with the Spirit of God. Our call, like those who have gone before us, is to press forward, believing that life is coming into the world. And that the invitation of God is here today asking us to join in it. Because according to God, everyone in this room is a prime candidate to be used to usher in God's deliverance in the world. And God prefers to usher in deliverance with human agents. Using men and women to do small things every single day that add up in the kingdom. I want to ask those who are receiving people for prayer, our elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go to your places to receive people. We're coming to the end of the year, and there may be someone in this room who is yet to confess Jesus as Lord or to be baptized into Christ. And this may be a day where God is knocking on the door of your heart and giving you an invitation to align yourself and your life and your priorities and your allegiances with the heart of God. And there may be others of us. There are many Christians in our world today who who ask themselves a question, will I go to heaven when I die? But they don't ask the question, how do I align my heart with the intentions of God? And anyone who's been baptized into Christ or takes the bread and the cup there is this constant invitation of God, align yourself with who God is, bend to his will, not to the, all the other agendas in the wor- world and what their wills are. And if you need an alignment check today, around this room are people to receive you and to pray over you. So can we stand together and let's sing a song?